0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to come and to hear you speak. Lord, we pray that we would indeed have ears to listen this morning. And Lord, we pray that we may be shaken by your word. And we pray that we would then be able to be following Jesus all the more fully as a result of the conviction that you give us by your Holy Spirit this morning. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been working through the book of Hebrews for some time now, and we've come to verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10. And so I encourage you to have that page open before you this morning, page 1191 of the Church Bibles, as we look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, through to verse 31 this morning. And this is a text that is actually quite troublesome for many people because it contains a fearful warning In verse 26 and following, it says in verse 26 If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire will consume the enemies of God. This is a fearful warning that comes after the author has outlined again and again how Jesus is the great high priest. And he is the one who has offered the only sacrifice that is sufficient for sins. And that is the sacrifice of his own body that Jesus gave himself so that his people could be cleansed from all unrighteousness. And so last week we saw a review of that in verse 19 and 20 and 21. That is a, basically a summary statement of what has come previously, where we read in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and then he gives us, exhortations as to how we are to respond to this wonderful teaching about Jesus' body. And that's where he says in verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. And then in verse 23 he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And then in verse 24 he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So he sets up in verse 19, 20 and 21, what has come previously, that Jesus is the great high priest, And then we saw that there are three lettuces that come after that. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And then in verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And so last week, we considered those three lettuces and considered what they mean for us. So he's told us what we should do. But now in verse 26, he tells us what we shouldn't do. And what happens to those who reject God and reject the teaching that has come earlier in the book of Hebrews? Now, this is quite troublesome for us as we look at it together because it appears at first glance to be describing Christians. It appears to be saying that Christians can go to hell for sinning. Look with me again at verse 26 where it says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Who are these people that are described in verse 26? Well, it says that they're people who have the knowledge of the truth, which, of course, we know is a description of Christians. Christians have the knowledge of the truth. They have been enlightened with the truth about Jesus. And then it also says, down in verse 29, that these are people who have been sanctified. Verse 29, it says, How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace? How are these people described? They're described as people who have been enlightened, who have the knowledge of the truth, which we know is what we usually say of Christians. There are also people who have been sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? To be sanctified means to be made holy, to be cleansed. And we would say quite readily that the scriptures teach again and again that God's people are holy people, that they have indeed been sanctified. But then we look at verse 26 and we see that It says if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have this knowledge of the truth and after we have been sanctified, then there's no sacrifice for sins remaining. Which, as Christians, we know that we keep on sinning. It is not as though when we become a Christian, we suddenly end up in sinless perfection. No, Christians continue to sin. They continue to break God's law. And so then this warning seems quite serious to us because it seems to be saying that a Christian either needs to be perfect or they are condemned. There is no sacrifice for sins remaining for them, as it says in verse 26. And then in verse 27, what does it say? But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. This... Seems quite scary. But then we remember other passages in scripture that tell us that when you're a Christian, you can't fall away, that if you really do believe in Jesus Christ, that you are carefully protected by God and will persevere in the faith. An example of that is John chapter 10, verse 27. John chapter 10, verse 27, where Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. What is Jesus saying there? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in the Son's hand, and no one can snatch you out of the Son's hand. And then he says even higher than that in verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So how then do we reconcile a clear teaching from Jesus with a passage like Hebrews 10, Twenty-six, where it says if we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Where it seems to say there is no Jesus for you anymore if you deliberately keep on sinning after you have been enlightened. Well, I think that the way that we understand this passage is not by thinking that these people described in verses 26 through to 31 as Christians— But these are people who are actually unbelievers and have appeared to be Christians for a time but then show by the way that they live that they were never actually believers at all. How could I say that? Well, if we consider how they're described, I think it actually fits better with a description of unbelievers. Do unbelievers have a knowledge of the truth? Are unbelievers enlightened? about the things of God. We know that Christians are definitely, but are unbelievers, are non-Christians, knowledgeable about God and his gospel. Well, the answer to that is yes. If you know any unbelievers, they can be quite enlightened about the things of God. They can know the gospel far better than some Christians, I'm ashamed to say at times. I have an atheist friend, and he certainly understands the gospel. He understands that if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you are cleansed from your sins. He understands the gospel. He understands that there is a God. He knows much of the Bible. He has read the New Testament. Does he have a knowledge of the truth? Yes. So then he could be one of the ones that is described here. What about the whole idea of being sanctified? Can we say that unbelievers are sanctified? Well, if you mean an inward cleansing, a purification, a sanctification that comes on the inside, then we'd have to say no. But the scriptures do teach about an outward cleansing, an outward sanctification, an outward holiness that people can experience. Holiness means set apart, different from others. And we can see how unbelievers can be sanctified In an outward sense, the author of Hebrews has even mentioned this kind of sanctification earlier in chapter 9. In chapter 9, when we studied it together, verse 13, we saw that the Old Testament sacrifices actually did sanctify the priests. Look with me and go back one page to 1189 of the Black Church Bibles. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 where it says the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. If you remember back to that sermon that I gave on this passage, I talked about different types of water. You can have a really dirty water and it does clean you to some extent, but then there's a pure water of Jesus Christ that really does cleanse and cleanses inwardly. So are non-Christians sanctified? Well, outwardly they can. They can be holy in the way that they behave to some extent. And particularly in contact with God's people, people can start to live in a more holy manner. One of the clearest ways that you see how a Christian can have a sanctifying effect upon a non-Christian is by the language that a non-Christian will use around a Christian. We were talking about this at Bible study just this last week. Someone was saying it's interesting how people will speak, uh, not use coarse language when they're around a Christian. They'll actually tone down their language. What are they doing? They're sanctifying their language. The, the Christian influence there is having a sanctifying effect upon the unbeliever. And so we could say, yes, unbelievers have been sanctified by God's people, by the work that God has done in them. They are sanctified at least outwardly. They can live moral and upright lives to some extent because of the sanctifying work of God through his people. But that's not my real reason for saying that these people are unbelievers the enlightenment of the truth the sanctifying I mean they still could be said of Christians how do we know that these really are unbelievers in this passage well it's because of the sin that is described in verse 29 that these people commit turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29 what do these people do Verse 29 says, How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished? Who has? And then we're going to have three things. What has this person done? Trampled the Son of God under the foot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. They've done three things. What are the three things that they've done? Firstly, they've trampled on the Son of God. Now, this isn't a walking over Jesus. This is a, the word, the Greek word here means to tread as to injure someone. That you basically think of a kid in a playground stomping on somebody else's toes. They're not just walking over the person's toes, they're treading on that person's foot so as to injure the person. I do that sometimes with weeds that I see in the wrong spot in my garden. I've become a bit of a fan of my grass and I tread lightly on the grass. But on weeds, I will stomp on them. My children don't seem to have the same interest in grass, and my son said to me this last week, it's just grass, Dad. And I said, what? What did you say? He said, it's just grass. But we have this kind of understanding, don't we, that we don't stomp on, we don't trample on things that we should treat with respect. And that is what is being described here in relation to the Son of God. That these are people who tread on Jesus Christ. They insult Jesus Christ. They reject Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say more about how they treat God, how they treat the Son of God in verse 29. It says, "...who has treated us as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him." There's a rejection of the blood of Jesus and you see this with unbelievers. They hate the blood of Christ sometimes. They hate the idea of a death having to be given for them, that someone had to die in their place because they're not that bad. They don't need someone to die for them. And they even say it seems a horrible thing that someone else dies in their place. That's my atheist friend. He understands the gospel, but he thinks it's unfair, it's unjust, that somebody else's blood would be used to pay for somebody else's transgressions. And so there's a spurning of that blood of the covenant. They're not interested in the blood of Christ, and they reject it. And how else are they described in verse 29? It says that they have insulted the spirit of grace. Another way that you could translate the word insult there is that they have outraged the spirit of grace. This is, a, this is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is a gracious spirit, who, who treats us as we don't deserve. And instead of accepting the work of the Holy Spirit, they insult him, they reject him, they want nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And so they outrage the Holy Spirit. So who is this warning to? Well, it's to the readers of Hebrews and to... People down through the centuries to us today. And it's a warning that those who have a knowledge of God, who even may have changed in their behaviour for some time, if they reject Jesus Christ, then there is a punishment that comes. And this is not a new concept. If you reject God, it has always been the case that you would be punished without mercy. And that's what the text actually says to us in verse 28. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. God has always punished those who rejected him without mercy. And we see that in the Old Testament. Turn with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 17, which is what the author of Hebrews is referring to in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. But turn with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 17, which is found on page 188, page 188 of the Church Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 17, and I'll read from verse 2. And see that this is not a new concept, that if you reject God, there is no mercy. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 2, where Moses says, If a man or woman living among you in one of the towns the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, your God, in violation of his covenant, and contrary to my command, has worshipped other gods, bowing down to them or to the sun, or the moon or the stars of the sky, and this has been brought to your attention, then you must investigate it thoroughly. If it is true, and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness." The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death and then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. It's always been God's way that if you reject him, then he rejects you and punishes you accordingly. And if that is the way God treated those who rejected him in the Old Testament, that they were punished without mercy, how much more will he punish those who reject him through Jesus Christ. And that is what is being spoken of here in Hebrews chapter 10. It says there in verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's what happened in the past. Then verse 29, how much more severely Do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? How much more severely, he is saying, do you think a person deserves to be punished? And then he outlines that it will indeed happen by the verses 30 and 31 and the quotes that we have there from the Old Testament. He says in verse 30, For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. And then verse 31 comes to us. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this warning here in Hebrews chapter 10, 26 and following, it's a severe warning. It's a warning that non-Christians can often look like Christians. They can be enlightened. They can be holy in the way that they live. But they can be unsaved. And sometimes they show their unbelief by treading on Jesus Christ, by rejecting the blood of the covenant and insulting the spirit of grace. And when they do, what do they face? They face the punishment of hell. They face the punishment of of eternal fire from God for their rejection of his son. And this is not a hypothetical thing. We can see it in our own lives, the people that we have contact with, and also people that we read about in the Bible. Who's an example of this? Judas Iscariot. Was Judas Iscariot enlightened about the things of God? Did he have a knowledge of the truth? Yes, Was he sanctified? Yes, he spent so much time with Jesus and the other disciples and with other godly people who followed Jesus around. He heard the best preacher who has ever walked the face of this earth. And yet, what did he end up doing? He trampled on the Son of God. He rejected the blood of the covenant He treated it as an unholy thing and he insulted the spirit of grace. And so what do the scriptures teach about him? Well, we understand that he is one who is doomed to destruction. Jesus speaks of him as one doomed to destruction. He looked like a Christian. He looked like someone who was following Christ. But in reality, he still had a heart of stone and was trampling on Jesus Christ. And so this is a passage that warns us to consider. All of us need to consider the dangers of hell. We often wish to speak about hell in a way that seems to air condition it, to make it more palatable, or we don't speak about it at all. We minimize talking about hell. But we need to take hell seriously. It is a core doctrine of the scriptures. It is a core warning to all people to repent of their sins because the wrath of God will one day come. We can't be ashamed to speak about hell. We must speak in a way that is winsome and where we are gentle if we can, but we have to remind people about the wrath that is to come because the scriptures speak about it and warn people about the wrath that is to come. That's why recently we've just this last week we've sent out a postcard into all the homes of Dremoyne encouraging people to consider the son and who he is and the eternal life that comes through him. But it also has on there about the wrath of God. We put on the front of this postcard John 3:36 whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Now it's with a bit of trepidation that we put out something like that. That people see, I hope they see the first part as well as the second. That there is eternal life to those who believe in the Son. But they also are aware that the wrath of God remains on those who reject the Son. I feel we have a responsibility I shouldn't say I feel. I know I have a responsibility to warn people about the fires of hell. I don't want souls that are suffering in hell to cry out to me and say, why did you not warn us? People who are in this very room this morning to say one day, why did you not warn us about the wrath of God that we are now experiencing for our rejection of Jesus Christ? And I feel a responsibility to the people of Dromoyne that we need to warn them to flee from the coming wrath. Otherwise, the blood is on our heads if we do not warn people, if we are watchmen, if we are meant to watch over a city, we are meant to warn people when doom is coming. And so we have to make sure that we remind people that there is a judgment to come. And that people need to accept the Son. They need to draw near to God. And so this morning, if you're thinking of walking away from Jesus Christ, you may have attended church for many years. You're thinking of walking away. Then don't do it. That is what the author is doing here with these original readers. They are being persecuted for their faith. And there are some people who are considering rejecting Jesus and going back to Judaism. But he is saying, don't do it if you deliberately keep on sinning after you've received the knowledge of the truth and no sacrifice for sins is left. But only a fearful expectation of judgment or of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And so if you're thinking of walking away, recognize what you're facing if you walk away and ask someone to help you with your concerns about Jesus Christ, why you're thinking of walking away, and help you to understand the truth about Jesus so that you don't, so that you really do trust in Jesus Christ and no longer face the consuming fires of God. But for the rest of us who consider ourselves to be saved and are not contemplating walking away, I think a passage like this we can still... Use it to examine ourselves. Ultimately, there are only two ways to live. You either draw near to Christ or spurn him. You can't sit on the fence. If you claim to be sitting on the fence, you're spurning Christ. You're rejecting him. And so we need to take advantage of the full warning of this passage to make sure that we are indeed saved and have eternal life. Now, I know some of us are very sensitive to warning passages like this. And if that is you, if you're always considering whether you're a Christian or not, then find peace in the arms of Jesus. Look at passages like John 10 that are such a great encouragement, that say that you're safe in the hands of God and no one can snatch you out of his hands. But if you rarely examine yourself, rarely consider whether you are saved or not, then look at this passage and take full advantage of the warning. We must remember Judas Judas stands as a great warning to us of how close you can come to being with Jesus, but actually be unsaved and end up walking away from Christ altogether. We should be very careful, we should be vigilant about the sins that are in our lives. Now, not every sin that we commit is a deliberate trampling of Jesus Christ, as we see here, where people outwardly reject Jesus. But every sin that we commit in some way is a a treading on Jesus Christ. And often that small treading on Jesus Christ that we commit, it leads to bigger and bigger sin and to one day outward rejection. Now last week we looked at the three lettuces that are there in verses 22, 23 and 24 of Hebrews chapter 10. And we can see how that you could start small in rejecting doing those three lettuces and then they become a habit and then before you know it you walk away from Christ altogether. What does it say for us to do in verse 22? It says let us draw near to God. You can see how you miss drawing near to God one day and then you meet with him the next and then don't meet with him the day after that. And before you know it, it's a couple of days in a row that are going without you drawing near to God, without you spending any time in prayer, without you spending any time hearing from his word. And before you know it, you're not drawing near to God at all. there has been a few months since you actually prayed. Or it may be that you no longer you loosen your grip a little verse 23 there says that we're meant to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess or the other way is hold fast as you could translate it you loosen your grip a little you think oh there are some problems with christianity and with christ and i don't like that about him and so you loosen your grip on some of the core doctrines and you loosen your grip a little further as the months roll on and before you know it you're letting go of major things and then you end up treading on Jesus Christ altogether. Or it may be that verse 24 you start to slacken off on, where it says that we're meant to consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds by meeting together regularly. And so instead of going to church every week, you miss a service here or there. Before you know it, it's two a month, three a month, and once every couple months you go to church before you tread on Jesus Christ altogether. We have to be very vigilant in our lives to work out whether we are indeed saved. Because it's easy to be someone who comes into a church, is enlightened and is sanctified to some extent, but is really unsaved. We need to examine ourselves. And we need to even encourage others to examine us. Here's a fun question for you to ask someone Do you see something in me that makes you think I'm not actually a Christian? It's actually a scary question to ask someone because they might tell you something that you don't want to hear. But think about someone that you trust that knows you fairly well, someone in your church family someone in your immediate family, and say, is there something you see in me that makes you think I'm actually unsaved? That I might be enlightened and holy in some ways, but I'm actually unsaved, that you have doubts about my faith. And be prepared to listen carefully to what they say and to not get angry at them as a result for being honest about something that they see in your life. And if after this examination has taken place, you've examined yourself or you've had someone else examine you, and you find that there is something wanting in your life and there is a possibility that you're unsaved, what are you to do? It's not to pounce on the thing that makes people think that you're unsaved. What is the thing that you're to do? You're to go back to Jesus Christ. Go back to verses 19, 20, and 21 or earlier in Hebrews that speak about what Christ has done, that we have confidence to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And we have a great high priest over the house of God. Go back to Jesus' work at the cross. If there is any possibility that you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, Go back to him today. Don't simply have knowledge of him, but have a love for him, have a faith in him, so that you are indeed saved. Because you don't want to be someone who has no sacrifice for sins remaining for you. Because there is no other sacrifice for sins. That's what that text is saying in verse 26. There is no sacrifice outside of the sacrifice of Christ, there's only judgment. Put your faith in Jesus today if you find that there's any possibility that you're not a believer in Jesus Christ so that you don't face the wrath that is to come. Let us speak with our God now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those parts of your word that are gentle towards us and comforting. But Lord, we thank you also that your word can be sharp and have words that we need to hear to awaken us from our apathy, to warn us of the judgment to come. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who speaks scripture that is profitable in all its fullness for us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would examine this passage. Even this afternoon, may we get out your word and look through it once more. Look through this passage. Look at the warnings that are there about the consuming fire and that you are a God who judges. And Lord, we pray that if anyone in this room is not a believer in Jesus Christ, that today may be the day where they draw near to you through him, that they start to live for your glory rather than their own. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.